All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for being our creator God, being the self-existent, eternal I am God. We, th- we just want to magnify your name, Lord, and lift it up. We, and we magnify your word even as you did above your own name because your word is truth. I pray, Lord, this morning that I would be able to speak the truth in love. I know it's such a dangerous thing to to stand before your people as the teacher of your word, and I just do so with much fear and trembling, Lord, because I want to to speak the truth as you present it in your word. Help me to do that clearly and boldly, and as I said, in love. Sanctify your people in your word, for your word is truth, and you are love. I pray, Father, that you would hide me behind the words and the works of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he might alone be lifted up and magnified, that he would draw all men to himself. We thank you, Father, for the truth that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Now I pray that we would all be able to focus clearly on what you have to say to us by your spirit through your word, for we pray in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, let's read, before I begin the lesson, let's read the verses we have already studied since it's been a couple weeks since we were in the Bread of Life sermon, so I want to review, starting with when the Lord had crossed over the stormy sea and the people got up in the morning on the side of the sea, which was near Bethsaida, and wondered where in the world he was and began to look for him and found him back over in Capernaum and wondered how in the world he had gotten there without a boat. (laughs) So let's begin by looking at the end of verse 25, where they ask him the question, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? In verse 26, he begins the Bread of Life sermon, which is not a monologue, it's a dialogue. He speaks a little bit, they interrupt, ask him a question. He speaks a little bit more, they interrupt with another question, and it goes on and on like that. So it's a dialogue. The whole Bread of Life sermon is a dialogue. But he begins in verse 26 by saying, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven. But my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Notice that, giveth life unto the world. We will be talking about the doctrine of unlimited atonement today as opposed to a very popular doctrine which is called the doctrine of limited atonement. So this is, one of, this is the, the verse that will launch us into that discussion, that he giveth his life unto the world. Verse 34, then said they unto him, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. Remember, this is the key verse for the whole bread of life sermon. 
I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never, and in the Greek it's emphasized never, no, never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never, no, never thirst. That launches us into the talking about the doctrine of the eternal security of the believer, which we will also be discussing this morning, as do some of the other verses we're coming to here. Verse 36, he said, But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Doctrine of eternal security for the believer. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose, how much? Nothing, eternal security of the believer, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. We'll stop there because that's sort of where we have gotten so far, except for a review on some of those last verses when we talk about the eternal security of the believer. We're continuing this morning with one of the most profound and deeply theological sermons ever presented during the Lord Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. This is his fifth sermon in our chronological study of his life, and as I just told you, the key passage is found in verse 35, where he said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. The Lord was in this sermon, sermon calling his people, or calling the people, to a faith in himself. He wanted them to understand that his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, not physical, and that entrance into his kingdom is based on what? Faith in his person. In the Sermon on the Mount, remember back in Matthew 4, 5, and 6, 5, 6, and 7, excuse me, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, for those of you who were with us when we studied the Sermon on the Mount, he had directed them to his person, to his word, as he taught them about the righteousness which is expected of kingdom citizens. Remember, it had to be a righteousness that exceeded the works type of righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, in this Bread of Life sermon, he's directing them to his person, as he taught them about the relationship that they must have with him in order to have, in order to receive the righteousness that is expected of kingdom citizens. Remember how we taught that in the Sermon on the Mount, the gospel message is not presented? It isn't. But here in the Bread of Life sermon, the gospel message about how to believe in the Lord, that salvation is um, necessitated by belief in in the Lord Jesus Christ, is presented over and over again. So in the sermon, he was talking about the righteousness expected, and now he's telling us in this Bread of Life sermon how how to receive that righteousness. It's a great exchange. We give him our sins, and he gives us his righteousness. Cannot hardly beat that, can you? (laughs) Of course, man can never attain on his own. He can never attain the high standards of righteousness that are demanded of God. And if there's one thing we learned when we studied the Sermon on the Mount, it was that, that there is no way we could ever attain God's holy standards of righteousness because they're just absolutely too perfect. And there's no way we could ever earn our way to salvation, to heaven. There's no way we could work our own way to heaven. But by believing, simply by believing in the Son of God, we can have 
his righteousness imputed to us by way of our identification with him. Therefore, we will be able, in doing that, in accepting him as Lord and Savior, and receiving his righteousness, we then also are able to receive at the same time everlasting life and access into his eternal kingdom. Now, in the first part of this discourse, which was verses 26 to 40, we had called that, if you look at your outline at the beginning of the chapter, we had called that part of our outline the bread of life revealed. In that section, Jesus had led his listeners, who consisted of the multitude of people he had, or at least a part of the multitude of the people he had just the day before miraculously fed with just a a small lad's lunch, consisted of two fish, two small fish, and five barley loaves. So he was leading, in this first part, Bread of Life Revealed, he was leading his listeners to the point where he declared that he is the true bread of life, which the Father sent down from heaven. And in that, in those verses, we saw over and over again how many times he was clearly claiming to be the divine Son of God. Now, there's a lot of cults and a lot of misdirected, misguided, maybe willfully so, people today who say that Jesus Christ never claimed to be divine. But all they have to do is read this Bread of Life sermon, and he does it over and over again. He not only called him God his Father, which the Jews knew, They certainly understood that that was a claim to deity because no man dared to call God his father. And so they understood he was definitely saying he was the son. He was divine. And that's in verse 32. But he also said he came down from heaven a total of five times in this sermon. Five, it's interesting, is the number of, in the Bible, it's symbolic of of what? Grace. And it truly was God's grace, was it not? which sent his only beloved, the only begotten son down from heaven to save man. So five times he says he came down from heaven. Furthermore, he claimed in verses 38 to 40 to know the Father's will. Now, who can say that they totally know the Father's will? But one who is of God, one who is God. And then, in addition to those bold statements of his deity, he stated that he is the one who gives eternal life. That's pretty point blank. He gives eternal life because the Father designated and sealed him for this special divine office. We saw that in verse 27. He also said that he is the one who keeps the believer's soul eternally secure. And he said that a total of four times. He spoke about the security of the believer. In verse 35, he mentions it twice when he says, He that cometh to me shall never know, never hunger. If you come to Jesus Christ in faith and are truly saved, you will never know never hunger again spiritually. Neither will you thirst, okay? If you lost your salvation, surely you would hunger and thirst again. So that's speaking of the eternal security of the believer. Also, we have it in verse 27 where he says, 27, I mean 37. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. And then we have it again in verse 39, where he says that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. And then he also tells us four times that it is he. He is the one who will raise the body of the believer on resurrection day. So 
pretty clear that he is claiming deity in this sermon over and over again, as he also did in the sermon that you read about in chapter 5 of John. Now, the crowd, you remember, had been so excited about that miracle of multiplying the fish and the five barley loaves that they had immediately wanted to make Jesus their king. We read about that in verse 15 of this chapter. To their thinking, he was their long-awaited Messiah, and he was that prophet to come who was like unto Moses. Remember, this had been predicted back in Deuteronomy 18.15. So to their thinking, if he was the Messiah, which they believed he was, then the title of king was rightfully his. And in this, were they right or wrong? They were right. In this, they were absolutely correct. But in the type of king they perceived him to be, that's where they were wrong. They did not understand the spiritual nature of his kingdom. They thought only in physical, earthly terms. They thought he could deliver them from Rome and from the despised Herod Herodian dynasty. But they never realized that he had the greater power to deliver them from sin and death. In willful ignorance of his views concerning his kingship, the crowd naturally, therefore, concluded that it must have been for fear or for a lack of belief in himself that Jesus declined their offer to make him king. They thought, you know, since he didn't accept the crown they wanted to give him, that they were going to force upon him. Since he declined that, he must be fearful of, he must not be the Messiah, or he would accept it. He must be fearful of taking it because he knew he was a deceiver. So their logic told them that if he would not accept Israel's crown, then he could not possibly be the Messiah. So their enthusiasm, immediately following the miraculous feeding the day before, had been repressed by his refusal. And so their misunderstanding, we will see, quickly turned to doubt And then their doubt quickly turned to defection. And that's what we see by the time we come to the end of this sermon. When you look ahead at verse 66, and it says what? They turned, and at that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. So in our part two study this morning, and this is part two in your books, even though this is our third lesson for you and I, studying the Bread of Life sermon, but in the books it's part two. We're going to look at the second part of our outline. We've looked at the Bread of Life revealed, you know, when he said, I am the Bread of Life, and now we're going to look at the Bread of Life resented. With verse 41, there seems to be an interruption, well, there is an interruption in the Lord's teaching, and this interruption apparently was caused by the arrival of a new group of people who are introduced to us by John the Apostle as the Jews. And usually when we read of the Jews in the, in the New Testament, it's a reference to the religious rulers of Israel, the scribes and Pharisees. Also, somehow the dialogue at this point has moved from out in the open somewhere in the city of Capernaum to now inside the synagogue in the city of Capernaum. And we know this because of verse 59. It says, these things said he in the synagogue. So everything before 59, between 59 and 41, was spoken in the synagogue. Does anybody remember who had helped build or financed that particular synagogue there in Capernaum? 
Remember the Roman centurion who went to the Lord to ask for his servant boy to be, to be healed and had great faith? The Jews in Capernaum loved that Gentile Roman because he had built their synagogue. That's just a trivial point. See how much you guys remember. <laughs> All right, this section of the sermon then begins with these Jews who had joined a portion of the crowd. Now, we know the crowd has to be getting smaller and smaller already because not all the 15,000 people who had been fed the day before would ever fit into the synagogue. So the crowd has grown smaller already, and now in the synagogue listening to him are also these religious rulers. And uh, they are highly offended, we find out in verse 41, by his claim to have come down from heaven. So as we look now at our next passage, which will take us to verse 58, I won't get that far this morning, but Lord willing, next week we'll pick up and finish through at least verse 58. This is the next section of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be looking at four subdivisions. First of all, the murmuring of the Jews. Then we'll look at the first message of Jesus. And then we'll discuss the misunderstanding of the Jews to the first message of Jesus. And then next week, we'll save for next week the second message of Jesus, which is where we get into the doctrine of transubstantiation. So let's read these verses now. I'm going to just start by reading verses 41 and 42, the murmuring of the Jews. It says in verse 41, the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? All right, John tells us right away what it is that caused these Jews to murmur among themselves. And it was, they must have heard part of the Lord's words when he was still standing outside somewhere in the city. They must have at least heard him declare that he had come down from heaven. And that, they understood, was a very clear claim to deity. And it made them mad. To them, it was ridiculous. It was ludicrous. They knew, or at least they thought they knew, that he did not come from heaven. He came from despicable Nazareth over there. He couldn't have come from heaven because they knew his father. They knew his father's name was Joseph. Some even doubted that his real father was Joseph and that he was um, a bastard child of even a Roman soldier. But here, at least, they say, well, we know your father was Joseph. We know your mother. So they're murmuring. And it's interesting that the Greek word used in this verse for murmured is the same Greek word that is used in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is simply the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written originally in Hebrew. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The same Greek word is used for the murmuring that went on among the children of Israel when they were wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. So these Jews here in John chapter 6 were definitely the true descendants of their forefathers. Some things never change. Still, they still have this, the mass of Israel had this terrible habit of what? Murmuring. Ooh, I hope we don't have that habit. It's a bad habit. But they were uh, known for their murmuring. Poor Moses. Don't you feel so sorry for Moses? He always had to deal with their murmuring. And he had, what? Some three million people who were murmuring. Terrible job. So they hadn't changed. Whether they were offended or murmuring over manna from heaven. Remember, they got tired of manna. 
Can you imagine manna, what it must have tasted like? When we were out in California um, this over Thanksgiving visiting our son, one of our favorite places to go is Krispy Kreme Donuts when the hot and now sign is on. Have you, do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> we even bought a hot and now flashing Christmas ornament for our Christmas tree. <laughs> Cost one dollar if you buy a dozen donuts. Well, when you walk in, when the hot and now sign is on, you get a free donut right off the line. Oh, and I said, there can't be anything closer to manna than this. It just melts in your mouth when it's warm like that. And, of course, they know they've got you because once you've tasted one, you wind up buying at least a dozen donuts every time. But that's, I don't know what coriander seed tastes like, but I don't imagine it tastes like a hot and now donut. Anyway, they, they had these hot and now manna donuts every single day, and yet they murmured about it. It's the same old thing every day, manna from heaven. And now they're mumbling and murmuring about the true bread sent down from heaven, the true bread of life. Now, what does manna mean? Who knows what manna means? What is it? When it fell, they looked at it the first time and said, what is this? What is it? And this is exactly what they're still questioning about Jesus, who is, of course, the fulfillment of manna. They're saying, manna, what is this? He cannot have come down from heaven. We know his origin. And it's right from over there in Nazareth. He's not God's son. He's the son of Joseph. He's the son of Mary. What is this that he's trying to pull over on us? It seems next, then, for the benefit of this new group, these Jews, these scribes and Pharisees, that the Lord repeated much of what he's already stated. Remember I told you last time, I think I told you, how much the Lord repeats in his teaching, says the same things over and over again because we're slow to learn, aren't we? So he, he basically says a lot of the same things he's already stated in the first part of his sermon. So in response to their murmuring, we have kind of a quick review of our last lesson. And I think it's interesting that he just went right back to the salvation message. He did not allow himself to become engaged in a debate here, which we can so easily fall into when we're witnessing to somebody or talking to somebody about the Lord, and they can ask, they can try to sidetrack us with a question about, like, who did Cain marry, or do you believe in a global world flood at the time of Noah, or was it a local, you know, they can get us off on all these tangents. But Jesus is our example, and it's interesting to me here that he didn't say, oh, no, no, guys, you've got that all wrong. I'm not really from Nazareth. I was born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. Remember the census? Well, my mother had a good... And my father is not really Joseph. He's my stepfather. He didn't get into all that. He just kept giving people what they need the most, and what is that? The gospel, the gospel message. What the Lord does in this part, let me read verses 43 to 51. What he does in in this part of his message is give proof of the fact that he did come from heaven. And this proof is that he could reveal the will of the Father to them. All right, let's read verses 43. I guess I'll just go ahead and read through 51. All right, Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, and here's a good verse to memorize. You can memorize this in two seconds, (laughs) and you can teach it to your children, (laughs) and maybe to your husband. (laughs) Murmur not among yourselves. Isn't that easy? Let's all say that. Murmur not among yourselves. See? 
I've already got it memorized. Such an easy verse to memorize. Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Not elect him, but draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. And it is written in the prophets. And here's what's written. And they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God. He hath seen the Father. And, of course, there he's speaking of himself. Verse 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath, that's present tense, isn't it? Hath everlasting life. And then he repeats what he said back in verse 35. Shorter form. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. Of course, there again, he's speaking of himself. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give And here we go into the doctrine of the unlimited atonement, which I will give for the life of the world. All right. So here in this part of the message, the Lord is giving proof of the fact that he did come from heaven. And that proof is that he could reveal the will of the Father to them. Only one who came down from the Father in heaven could reveal the Father to the people. Throughout his earthly ministry, the Lord Jesus continuously repeated the statement that he came to reveal to man who? His, the father, his father. And, to, and he came to do the father's will, didn't he? He knows the father's will and he came to do the father's will. How do we know the father? How can we get to know God the father? By knowing God the son. He reveals to us what God the father is like. So in these verses, Jesus revealed to his listeners the Father's work, the Father's word, and the Father's way. In verse 44, we have the Father's work. The Lord stated that it is his Father's will to draw men to him. And this is kind of an explanation for their murmuring. He was, in effect, saying, by your murmuring, you're making it evident that you are not drawn by the Father to come to me. And as we mentioned last time, this, is, this statement is actually a statement of both the divine sovereignty of God and also the free will of man. Uh, um, no man can come to me, he says, and aren't you glad it doesn't end there, except the Father. And that except is the accept of God's love and grace. And I'm so thankful for that except. <laughs> no man can come to me except the Father which sent me Draw him. The salvation of any man is dependent upon the work of God. We talked about this uh, when we looked at verse 29, when Jesus said this is the work of God. It is the work of God's grace and love using the convicting work of God's spirit and the finished work of God's written revelation, the Bible, which draws or compels a man, a woman, a young person to believe on the finished work of God the Son on the cross. Remember what Jesus said in uh, 
John 12, 32, he said, And I, if I be lifted up from earth, speaking of his crucifixion when he was lifted up on the cross, will draw all men unto me. You see, God's drawing work is for all men. The Lord made here no attempt to correct their ignorance over his origin other than to rebuke their murmuring and tell them that they were in no position to judge him. Without God's help, you see, it all begins and ends with God. Without God's help, any assessment of God's son would be faulty because no one can come to Jesus and believe on him without God the Father's drawing work. I didn't say electing work, but his drawing work. And um, we're going to get back. I want you, let's just flip over real quickly because I, I do want to talk more about this doctrine that is called the doctrine of limited atonement, which is a growing doctrine in our day and age. goes along with the doctrine of unconditional election, which we talked about last time, where they deny that man has any free will, that God has predetermined from eternity past who will go to heaven and who will go to hell. Well, along with that doctrine of unconditional election is this doctrine of limited atonement, which states that Jesus only died for those who will go to heaven. He did not shed his blood, and he did not give his flesh on the cross for those who will go to hell. So he did not die for all mankind. He only died for the elect. That is the doctrine of limited atonement. All right, let's look. I do not believe in that doctrine, and I will tell you why in a little bit. I'll give you a lot of scriptures. But let me just look, whet your appetite right now, at Romans um, 5.18, if you will turn there for just a second, and then we'll go right back to where we were. And by the way, this is part of what is called the tulip T-U-L-I-P, doctrine. And uh, many call it Calvinism, but I want to tell you that John Calvin himself, and I can have give you quotes, at the end of his life, denied the doctrine of limited atonement. He said he did not believe in it. In other words, he believes in unlimited atonement. When he died, he believed that Jesus died for all men. So this is not, as they will tell you, a Calvinistic doctrine. Because Calvin himself, at the end of his life, did not believe in it. All right, it says in verse 18 of of Romans 5, Therefore, as by the offense of one, now that one is speaking of Adam, the first Adam, Adam, whose wife was Eve, all right? There is by, therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. It says, even so, by the righteousness of one, and who is that second one? Jesus Christ, the second Adam. By the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. That's just one verse I want to show you. And look down at the end of verse 20, where it says, But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Where sin abounded, because of Adam's sin, we are all born sinners. We inherited the Adamic sin nature. Now, how could you tell me 
that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound if Jesus, the second Adam, did not die for all men, but actually only died for a very small percentage of mankind. Would that be grace much more abounding than even sin? No, it would not. I know you have to think about these things, but we can do it. We can be deep thinkers. And I commend you for your willingness to get into a lot of this deep stuff. All right, let's go back. Um, Verses 45 to 46. In these two verses, the Lord talked about the importance of God's word in drawing one to his son in salvation. And he referred to, he quoted from Isaiah 54, 13, when he said, and they shall be all taught of God. He's talking about when you're taught of God, you're taught by his word, either his living word, Jesus Christ, or his written word, the scripture. Those who are drawn to God, or Christ, his son, are those who are taught by his word. Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. Jesus said that every man who has ears to hear and has a heart and mind to learn of the Father, as you're doing, through his word, will come to him. The power is in the word, isn't it? It's not in the person who's speaking. It's in the power. The word, the dynamite is in the word. The word is what, don't you feel it? drawing you? I know I did when the people first witnessed to me. I felt the power of the word and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit drawing me to him. He says, everyone who has ears to hear and a heart to learn will be drawn and will what? Come to him. We do have choice, free choice in the matter. Yes, we are drawn by the Father. It all begins and ends with him. He is author and finisher of our faith. But we also have to choose to come. Coming to Christ from the human perspective then requires a, uh, an action of the human will. While from the divine perspective, it requires an action of God's will. Now, I leave it up to God how those two work together. I'm not really overly concerned about it. God is God, and the two work together because he teaches both in the scripture. The guaranteed promise and that which was predestinated before the beginning of the earth, is that everyone who comes to him will be resurrected. He will raise them bodily at the last day. And then he goes on, and so that no one might mistakenly think that he was saying that some direct teaching from God was necessary for salvation. He said that no man has ever seen the Father except he which is of God. He, that one who is of God, has seen the Father. You see, the Jews had, nat- had uh, wrongly identified Jesus with Joseph, who was just a natural man. They had made this the basis for their unbelief of Christ's claim to have come from heaven. And now, to set the record straight, he tells them that before his incarnation, he had actually seen the Father. What is that if it isn't a claim to deity? He had seen the Father. And he fur- further said that he is of God. He is one with God. So in effect, he's telling the Jews, you are wrong in presuming that I am from Joseph. I am the one who existed eternally with God in heaven. I am the one who alone can reveal God the Father to you and tell you God's will. 
And now that he must have really had their undivided attention, can't you imagine those guys sit standing there in the synagogue with their jaws hanging open? He doesn't let them interrupt, and he just goes right on to tell them what it specifically was that God the Father had sent him to reveal to the world, and that is the way of salvation. So in verses 47 to 51, we have the Father's way. We've had the Father's work, the Father's word, and the Father's way. The crowd had wanted, remember back in verse 30, the crowd was so amazing to us that they wanted to see something, that they asked him for a sign, even after he had performed many miracles just the day before and had also miraculously fed them, 15,000-plus people probably, and had 12 baskets of leftovers just from a small, meager lad's lunch. That wasn't enough of a miracle for them. They still wanted to see a sign. He knew even though they had asked for this, he knew that their real need was not to see, but to learn something. And that something was how to receive eternal life. Isn't that every man's real need? Absolutely. He told them in verse 47, he starts again with verily, verily. And whenever he says verily, verily, listen up, it's important. And he said what he'd already said back in verse 29, verse 35, and verse 40, that the one who believes on him is the one who has present test eternal life. When you receive Jesus Christ, when you come to him in faith and accept his death on your behalf for your sins, you have present tense eternal life right then and there. And he had already told them how this was made possible. He said that it was the work of God. He said that God is the one who draws the sinner to himself, the Savior. Furthermore, he said he does this, we just talked about this, through the teaching of his word. And then in verse 48, he drew his listeners right back to the single great principle that he had been pointing out all along in this discourse and why it has the name bread of life. He said in verse 48, I am that bread of life. And then maybe again for the benefit of this new crowd consisted of these Jews, he repeated his, um, well, he repeated his I am statement to make it clear that he is, was equating himself with Jehovah God who had told Moses, I am that I am. And before they might mistakenly then do what the crowd had done and compare him with Moses and with manna, he went right on to state how much greater than manna he is. He said in verse 49, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are what? They're dead. Manna, he said, only sustained life for the Jews temporarily. Everyone who ate ever ate manna, even if they ate it for 40 years, hot and now donuts, (laughs) for 40 years, um, died. Every one of them was dead. But he went on to say in verse 50, 50 that the bread that comes down from heaven, which he claimed to be himself, will cause the one who eats it not to die. And, of course, when he's talking about eating, he's talking about internalizing him, receiving him, accepting him as Lord and Savior, not literally eating him. I mean, that's pretty obvious, you would think. Manna merely ministered to a temporal, physical need in that it fed the Jews' bodies and kept them alive for a while. But it wasn't able to immortalize them, was it? Of course not. However, those who eat or internalize the true bread of life shall live forever. Not die means that they will not experience the second death, ever. When God gave manna, he only gave the people a gift. But when God gave the bread of life from heaven, he gave himself, the true bread of life, 
he gave himself. Yet, um, the day before yesterday, Sunday, when my son, my son was able to fly. It's interesting. I just saw him for 10 days, and then he calls, and he says, I'm going to fly into Pope Air Force Base. <laughs> so he flew in Friday. We went over there. It was so neat to see him come out of the clouds and land. He went over us at 400 miles an hour. Can you imagine? <laughs> And then he did a break off and came around, and it was just really cool. But when we saw him off on Sunday afternoon, I, I just I, I realized, because he took off, you know, and up, up into the clouds, and then he just disappeared. And I was waving at him, and he tipped his wing, and I broke out crying. They tip their wing when they're, like, waving to you. And I, I thought I had this moment where I thought, what God sacrificed when he gave his only begotten son, when he was willing to give his only begotten son, I only have one son, for the freedom of mankind. And that's how I look at my son. He's willing to die for, so that we can have freedom to fight for our country and for, to fight for other people and their freedom. But, you know, I thought about how I'm not so willing as God. I am not as willing as God was to give him his son. But when he gave man, it was just a gift. But when he gave the true bread from heaven, he gave his only begotten son. It says, uh, Jesus said in verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give, I will give. It was a voluntary giving is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. There was no cost to God when he gave manna from heaven every day for 40 years but when he gave his son it was at a great cost to him because his son gave his flesh and shed his blood his precious innocent blood as a sacrifice and he voluntarily did this to be the payment for man's sin now before we get into the rest of this um on manna oh boy i am running out of time i do want to get back to the doctrine of limited atonement and to, to defend, limited atonement is also called limited redemption. And it basically says that Jesus Christ did not die, did not shed his blood, did not give his flesh for the world, but only for the saved, only for those who were elect. And to just refute this, I want to use scripture. Scripture speaks louder than any anything I can any argument I can give you. I will say this to teach the doctrine of limited atonement. Those people have to twist some of the plain clear meaning of scripture. They have to take words like whole world and make them mean something else. So you sort of have to be um a theologian in their doctrine to understand what the words whole world really mean. They don't really mean whole world, but they mean the whole world of the elect. All right? And I'll tell you where they do that in some cases. But the scriptural grounds for uh, condemnation is simply unbelief. Please turn the cassette to side two, or if this is a CD, just continue to let it play. All right, let me give you Second um, Peter 2.1. If you want to write some of these down and look them up and study on, their, on your own. These are defense scriptures that teach that Jesus did die for the sins of the whole world. I believe 
in the doctrine of unlimited atonement, that Jesus died for everybody. This verse says, 2 Peter 2, 1, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them. This verse is speaking of false prophets and false teachers. Who are they? Believers or unbelievers? They are definitely unbelievers. False prophets and false teachers are unbelievers. And yet it says that they denied the Lord that bought them. He bought them. He died for them. Very clear. All right, Hebrews 2.9 says that he, speaking of Christ, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. I don't know another way to interpret that, except that Jesus Christ tasted death for every man. 1 John 2.2, this is a very strong one. And here is where they take the whole world, not to mean the whole world, but just the whole world of the elect. It says in 1 John 2, 2, and he, Christ, is the propitiation, meaning he is the satisfaction. He satisfied the justice of a holy God. He is the propitiation for our sins. John was writing to believers. Propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. How much clearer can it be? It's too clear for them. So they have to change the whole world to mean the whole world of the elect. But then he'd be duplicating what he just said. He said for our sins. So he'd be saying for the sins of the elect and for the sins of the whole world of the elect. And then they'd have to change the words the whole world to mean the world of the elect in the rest of 1 John. And if you look through 1 John and do that, it doesn't make any sense in many passages. You cannot do that. All right, then there's 2 Corinthians 5.14, which says, For the love of God constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. The key words there is that one died for all. Acts 10.43, To him, give to Christ, give all the prophets witness that through this name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Then there's 1 Timothy 2.6, speaking of Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. John 3.16, you all know this verse, for God so loved the world. Did you ever understand that to mean just the world of the elect? I never did. (laughs) For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 2 Corinthians 5.19, To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men. 1 Timothy 4.10. Romans 1.16. The gospel of Christ, the power of God unto salvation is to everyone that believeth. Uh, Acts 17.30. God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. How could God give a command to repent to all men if he didn't die for all men? You know, if you believe in the doctrine of limited atonement, you cannot honestly 
and with a good conscience look somebody in the face and say, Christ died for you, because you don't know if he died for them. But I'm telling you, this is a very growing doctrine in our world today, in America today. And some of our leading Bible teachers and theologians are, are um, supporting this. John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. How could you do that if you couldn't tell every creature Christ died for you? Romans 5, 6, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's a good one. Christ died for the ungodly. Titus 2, 11, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And then there's the types. Not only all these verses, and there are many more, but there's the types. When Moses acted as a type of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, he did not offer the blood, when he sprinkled the blood on the altar, in the holy, the holy of holies on the altar between the, you know, on the um, mercy seat. He didn't sprinkle that blood for just the elect of Israel, just the saved. He did it for the entire nation. Now, do you know that not everybody who was part of Israel was saved? Just, and I've heard proponents of this doctrine say, well, God says Israel mine elect. But everybody in Israel was not saved. They were not all elect. What he was saying was, Israel is my elect nation. I've chosen her for a special purpose. Uh, Jesus said, as, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, remember when he set that brazen serpent on a pole and set it up because everybody had been bitten by snakes and were going to die? He lifted up that, uh, that serpent on the pole in the wilderness He says, as Moses did that, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Who could could look at the serpent and be saved from the snake bite? Just the elect? No, it was set up there for anybody. Everybody. Anyone who chose to look at it. Same thing with manna. He's a picture of manna, isn't he? Jesus is. And yet, um, was manna just there for the elect? No, it was there for everyone, anyone who in humility would just simply bend over and choose to pick it up and eat it. And on and on we could go. All right. If you believe in the doctrine of limited atonement, at least give me your scripture verses for why you support it. And don't give them to me when you have to change the meaning of common sense words. All right. Manna, in many ways, was a good type of Jesus Christ, although, as we've seen, it was by far a lesser incomplete picture or foreshadowment of him. But it was a mysterious thing to the people, to the Jews, when they first saw it. And that's why they said, what is this? They'd never seen it before. That's in Exodus 16:15. Just like manna, Jesus was a mystery to the people. He, um, and he remains a mystery, doesn't he, to the Jewish people by and large and to many people in the world today? Manna was a type, a picture of Christ. Think of its appearance. It was small, which symbolized humility. It was round, which is a symbol of eternality. You know, a circle keeps going round and round, so it speaks of eternality. And it was white, which was a symbol of purity. And all three of these characteristics fit Jesus Christ, do they not? Also, it was said to be sweet to the taste. And we talked about last time, the, the Psalm 34, 8, which says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Manna fully met the needs of the people, as does Jesus. Furthermore, if you remember, manna fell at night. 
They'd get up in the morning and pick it up and have it for breakfast, but it fell at night, time of darkness, and it fell to, uh, on a rebellious people, always murmuring and grumbling and rebellious. Jesus also came to earth at a time of dark spiritual rebellion. Manna was, a, uh, was God's gift of grace to this rebellious people, and likewise Jesus is God's gift of grace to a rebellious people. All the people had to do was stoop over, which is a position of humility. Remember, it all begins with poverty of spirit and pick it up. It was readily available for all. They just merely had to be willing to receive it as a free gift. Well, when Jesus ended this part of his sermon, he referred to his flesh, which he does a total of seven times in this sermon. And this was, and that's interesting, because his flesh was sinless. It was perfect. Seven is the number of perfection. This was really a prophecy, isn't it? This is forecast number six in our Life of Christ study, because he's really predicting that he would be giving himself as a sacrifice for the life of the world. Did he know he was going to die? Yes. It was not due to circumstances beyond his control. He stated that he would give himself. It was a voluntary giving. The cross was not something that he could not avoid. It was part of his father's will. All right. Well, let's see. I've got to skip some things. When Jesus finished speaking and telling the Jews and the people in the synagogue there that the father's way to have eternal life was for a man to place his faith in the son, the bread of life sent from heaven to give his flesh for man, the opposition of the Jews turned from murmuring to increased opposition. And the the reason for that is because of their misunderstanding of his words, eating his flesh. They misunderstood. Let's just read verse 52, and then I want to give you some verses to support the eternal security of the believer. Let's look at verse 52 where it says, The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Isn't it amazing that they always continuously make the same mistake over and over again and take him literally instead of understanding that he's speaking spiritually. He's speaking in in metaphors. When he's talking about eating and drinking, we'll get to this next week, he's talking about internalizing him, accepting him, receiving him, not being a cannibal, but... Unfortunately, it has been badly misunderstood by many, many people. I want to finish now because in verses 37 to 40, we had four times mentioned the, or verse 35 to 40, four times the eternal security of the believer, which is another doctrine. Some people do believe that once a person is saved, he or she can lose his or her salvation. Now, when you joined this Bible study, You were given a statement of faith, so you know already up front that we do not here in this Bible study believe that once a person is genuinely born again, that he or she can lose his or her salvation. So this should not surprise you that this is where we are coming from. If you believe otherwise, that's your prerogative, but I am going to give you, I could give you 50 reasons why I believe that a truly born-again person can never, ever, ever lose their salvation. I have 50 reasons on um, notes that I have plenty of if you want afterwards. There are 50 reasons why a saved person can never be lost. I will probably only give you about 15 of them very quickly. 
So come up front and get them from Terry, or they're sitting here on the front pew if you want all 50. They come from Kent Kelly's book, which is called Inside the Tulip. It's available at the Christian bookstore down in Southern Pines. Uh, this is called the assurance of the believer. But one thing I want to be very, very careful of, and this is the danger of teaching the security of the believer, is that a person must make sure, absolute sure, that before they feel secure in their faith, they truly are born again. Because I believe we have many people who think, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm saved so I can never lose my salvation, but they're not really saved. They have never truly, genuinely been saved. So that's the danger. But once you are sure that you are saved and you have accepted Christ and you have repented of your sins and your heart's desire is to live for him, you are secure. And we know this because it's based on his word. Now, if you don't believe the Bible is God's inspired word, then we have no basis for this doctrine. But if you do, let me give you my reasons, or not mine, but Kent Kelly's, which I agree 100% with. First of all, eternal life is just that, eternal Jesus said in John 10, 28, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Um, just based on, on the definition of the word eternal, it has to be eternal. To be truly eternal, it must go on forever. If Jesus uh, was making a promise that wasn't eternal, he would have to say something like, I give unto them temporary, potential eternal life. And they will never perish if they hold on to their faith. But by promising eternal life or everlasting life, just by the definition of those two words, it has to never cease once it is received. You get that? (laughs) All right. um, Another one. This is from John 6.39. This is one of our verses we just used. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing. That's pretty clear. We have an inheritance. We have um, a reservation already made for us in heaven. If you truly are born again, you have a sure reservation in heaven, which is you're not going to get at the Red Roof Inn and find out they don't have your confirmation number. You have a sure reservation, which is incorruptible and undefiled. Neither you nor Satan nor anyone else can defile or corrupt that which... God has declared to be incorruptible and undefiled. Also, at salvation, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit with that, you know, the Holy Spirit of promise. No power on heaven, in heaven or earth can break the seal that was set in place by omnipotence. And it says in um, John 14, verses 16 and 17, and I, I, this is Jesus speaking, and I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter. Who is that speaking of? the Holy Spirit, another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. The coming of the Holy Spirit at the time of salvation to indwell the believer is a permanent transaction which lasts forever. Once you have received the Holy Spirit at the time of salvation, he abides with you forever. You are preserved forever. Here's very clear. Psalm 37, 28. For the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. Now, saints aren't just the the ones on the stained glass windows. If you truly are born again, this always amazed me because I grew up in a church where they were the ones on the stained glass windows. But every believer is called by God a saint. 
It says, For the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever. Very clear. Also, if you have been born of God, did you ever think about the fact that you cannot be unborn except a man be born again? You know, you are all here, aren't you? I guess you're here because I'm looking at you. You've all been physically born. Can you unborn yourself physically? No, you cannot. Once you're born, you're you're born. You can't un... That's what Nicodemus said. Well, I can't crawl back in my mother's womb. You can't unbirth yourself. Just same thing is true in the spiritual realm. Once you've been born again, you can't not unborn yourself spiritually. Same thing with having been, been made a new creature. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. There's only one creator, and that which he created cannot be uncreated. All right, let's see uh, another one. We are kept by the power of God. This is in 1 Peter 1, 5. It says, you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. How could, we're not kept by our own power. We're kept by God's power. So how could anyone kept by the power of God ever fail to be kept? Well, these are all upside down. I have to keep turning them around here. And now this is a very important one. This is in Romans 11.6. Salvation is by grace, right? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of works. Salvation is by grace, and works cannot affect it. This is Romans 11.6. And if by grace, Paul says, if salvation is by grace, which it is, and if by grace, then is it no more of works? Otherwise... Grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What he's saying there is that if you're saved by grace, which we are, but you think that you can lose your salvation, so you have to work to maintain yourself, to keep your salvation, then what are you doing but going right back to a work system? So it's no longer of grace. It's back to works. And works have no effect on salvation. Furthermore, when Jesus died, I've got news for you. When he died, he died for all your sins, past, present, and future. So those sins that you think you can commit to unsave yourself, he already died for them. They're already paid for, yes. All right? Also, it says in Hebrews 4.10, For he, the person that is entered into his rest, Christ's rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. You know, when God finished his creative work on the seventh day, he rested. When we enter into salvation, we enter into Christ's rest, and then it's not, nothing else is by works for us. We enter into his rest. Now, we do work to serve him, but there's no more work involved in, in uh, well, there never was any work involved in our creation. And this is a great verse, two verses, Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am persuaded, Paul says, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you know that that list is totally comprehensive? Nothing in the universe, physical or spiritual, living or dead, thought or deed, yourself or Satan, nothing shall be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And the love of God in Christ Jesus speaks of your salvation. 
Nothing, including yourself. There's nothing you can do once you're saved to remove yourself from the love of God. You cannot be lost. You cannot fall from grace. He's able to keep us from falling, isn't he? Now unto him who is able to keep us from falling. Um, John 5, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. The verses we looked at uh, today say the same thing about never shall never pair, uh, never hunger, never thirst. And then there's John 10, 27 and 28, where Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. And then also in that sermon, he talks about how no man can pluck his sheep out of his hand. And he goes on to say, or his father's hand. We are so secure. We're not only in the hand of, of God, the son, but over that hand is the hand of God the Father. And you can read about that in John 10, verses 29, 28 to 30. A few more and I'll be through. We have this verse, Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it, uh, perform it will complete it. Jesus always finishes what he has begun. Remember on the cross, he said, it is finished. Same thing with your life. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He doesn't leave a work half done. Furthermore, think about the fact that once you're saved, you're in the body of Christ. Would God's body be broken in pieces if, if a finger fell off? And we're hid in Christ. Our life is in Christ. There's so many passages. Anyway, there's 50 reasons and they are on these notes up here, and I, um, I beseech you, again, to get some so that you can have these not only to study for yourself, but maybe you can use these to help people who... Um, that's a, a fearful way to live. It is a fearful way to live, to think there's something you can do or maybe something somebody else to do could do for you to lose your salvation. But please do make sure you are genuinely saved before you have this assurance. All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you for the patience of your people. I know we've gone over. Thank you, Lord, for helping us to, um, to look into your word, to study these doctrines. And um, we just love you, Jesus. We thank you that we truly can rest in your promises, that your word is true and it is eternal. And we need not live by fear, but by faith. And, Lord, if there is one here who is not sure that she is saved, I pray that today she would come and settle that issue, speak to one of us, or just ask you to truly save her on her own, that she might truly know she has received, as of that moment, eternal life. We love you, Jesus. I pray that we will serve you and be lights for you this week. For we pray in your name. Amen.